Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Devin Cantwell, a graduate student in political science at the University of Utah, about her work on climate change and environmental politics. This is episode 59 of Untenured Tracks. ago, um, I started trying to get more involved with local governance that was happening in Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. um, partially because, you know, um, I think one thing that really became highlighted with the murder of George Floyd um, was the fact that local level politics makes a big difference. Um, it makes a big difference in people's day-to-day lives, right? Um, and a lot of these things are decided um, by races that have very small levels of participation, and um, by folks that have no expertise in the policy things that they're making decisions about. Um, and I sat in a couple of city council meetings and realized, like, wow, no one on my city council <laughs> understands anything about any of these issues, and they're not reaching out to researchers, and they're not actually, you know, accessing, like, what the best policy recommendations for these, these are. They're, like, flying by the seat of their pants. <laughs> I can totally, uh, yeah, I have a similar story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's so interesting, too, because um, I feel like in, in a lot of ways, it's this, like, inverse piece, like, the presidential election right now gets so much coverage and so much time and so much attention, um, but, and don't get me wrong, okay, I hate Trump, but <laughs> at, at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of Trump's policies on a direct level don't, uh, they're not going to affect most people. Um, yep. And even things that are affected, so, you know, for example, immigration policies, that depends on local level actors actually enforcing and carrying out executive orders that happen at the presidential level. Um, and so, really, it, it matters who's sitting on your city council and who's sitting in your county commission and who your mayor is and all of this. Um, and um, so, I, a couple months ago, I was like, all right, I, I need to get involved with like, the local politics here in Salt Lake City. Um, and so uh, I signed up for, I live in a neighborhood called Sugar House, um, so I signed up for the Sugar House Community Council, um, partially so I could just kind of stay up to date on the issues, um, and there was an email that went out last month that said, hey, we have spots open on our, you know, for trustees on the community council, reach out if you're interested, and so I reached out, and I was like, hey, you know, I'm a PhD student, I'm kind of interested in this, and they were, first of all, they were really excited, um, <laughs> And they were like, oh, we need more young people involved with this because what I found out at my first meeting yesterday is like most of this council is like, I, I would say the median age is probably like 65 on this council. Um, and so um, they don't have a, a lot of young folks involved, um, which is interesting because the issues that came up are really a lot of things that affect probably folks age 20 to 50 the most, right? Yep. Um, so um, just in the span of the meeting yesterday, we had, um, you know, a fundraiser for the my university's George Floyd Memorial Fund um, that was being done by, like, a local tea house uh, in our neighborhood. We um, 
had a housing development project being discussed. Um, one of the things that came up was like the percentage of affordable housing um, that was going to be put in this development, and it's coming up for a public um, a, a public debate presentation um, at the end of the month. But um, the thing, and, and this is where it kind of gets into the research area here, um, is we started discussing um, two different environmental issues that were popping up. So one of them, um, there's a public proposal um, coming up to um, that would basically would reduce the amount of um, kind of tax benefit or financial benefit that solar panels would have um, for homeowners um, by about 85%. Um, and it's being proposed by our local power company, um, who, um, interestingly enough, um, has made a commitment to converting more of its energy sources to being renewable energy on its grid. Um, and um, so it was somebody from an organization called Peel Utah uh, coming to present and kind of encouraging folks to reach out to um, the Utilities Commission because this is going to have a pretty devastating impact on Utah being able to have a competitive renewables market. Um, and um, and also converting a, a, a substantial amount of our grid to being renewables. Um, the other issue that popped up during this meeting, um, and this in particular um, is where it really gets into the crux of what I research here, um, <coughs> was um, we had a presentation by our public lands uh, office for Salt Lake City, um, and they're going through right now basically the development of a new master plan for public lands. Um, so they're looking at developing um, they're, they're looking at kind of increasing um, all different subsets of public land use, um, so increasing green spaces. They're looking at it as a climate change, both adaptation and mitigation strategy. Um, and um, in particular, I ended up asking the person that presented yesterday, I said, you know, look, so um, I research globally and nationally um, how cities are adapting to climate change, and green spaces are a thing that always comes up. Um, it's probably one of the most popular things that cities love to tell me about. They love to tell me about the green spaces. They love to show pictures of their green spaces. There's like this aesthetic connection between green spaces and like being environmentally friendly or you know tackling climate change, right? Um, and I think that there's there's a lot we can dive into the aesthetic aesthetics piece on this. Um, what's really interesting on this though is if you look at a breakdown of um, kind of climate change impacts for cities, so. For Salt Lake City, we have um, two kind of major climate change threats. So we have heat, um, which is a lot of cities right now, you're, you're dealing with urban heat effects. Um, and we also have really poor air quality. Um, and the air quality piece is always surprising to people um, because you think the great outdoors of Utah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I thought, I, I immediately thought you were going to say something about the lake, that the lake is, is polluted or or whatever, and maybe that's affecting the water table or something, but the air quality, the air quality caught me off guard. I mean, Utah markets itself as, like, like you said, the great outdoors, like, the, the cleanest, <laughs> the cleanest natural space in the country, practically. But there's an air quality issue, so what's going on? Yeah, um, so there's a huge air quality issue, and the water piece that you brought up is also interesting. It's definitely, I definitely want to make sure we talk about that. I'll, I will make a note. <laughs> Um, the air quality piece is a, a huge issue. So it, it's probably the most um, visible issue for Salt Lake City in a for a couple reasons. So first, um, if you look at like a top graphic, 
uh, like a topography of Utah. Salt Lake mm. City is literally in a book. Um, yeah. So that, like mountains kind of surrounding the whole city, and you've got Salt Lake City sitting in the bowl here. So during winter months, we have this thing called inversion. Um, and what it does is essentially um, it pushes um, all of our polluted air down. Mm-hmm. Um, the cold air system is coming in because okay. that is a di- like that air is denser. Yep. Uh, and um, so um, that so there's there's actually times during the winter months where you walk outside your door and you can't see maybe more than five feet in front of you. Oh my um, gosh! And um, funny enough, when uh, COVID nineteen hit. I actually already had an N95 reusable mask mm-hmm. because I bought one a few years ago and I moved here because there are some days that are so bad that you have to wear a mask like if you're I'm asthmatic and so yeah I can't like breathe during the winter months um, on some of these days if I don't wear a mask oh my gosh um, yeah and so the air quality gets really bad um, and um, so there there's these kind of natural like environment type of reasons why we have that um <laughs> We also, you know, we, Salt Lake City has a lot, you know, we, we have public transportation, but we still have a lot of people who use their cars, vehicles, um, to get from point A to point B across the valley. Um, so we do have somewhat of an individual level contribution to the pollution levels here. Um, and then another thing that folks don't realize about Salt Lake City is that we also have a lot of the industry here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, um, you know, a lot of, manufacturing um, and production um, type of stuff and so there is like this manufacturing pollution um, that ends up getting like put out into the air here. Um, so what's interesting about this um, is that this is not a kind of a fixed rate of air pollution across the city. Um, it is worse in some areas than others um, and if you had to guess where like what type of folks do you think live in areas that have the worst air pollution here? Listeners, Devin's giving you a pop quiz. <laughs> I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say it's probably black and brown people living in poor communities. Ding ding ding. <laughs> what do I win? <laughs> um, yeah. So the west side of so Salt Lake City, like many other cities, um, is really highly segregated. Um, the east side of Salt Lake City tends to be more white, um, more economically affluent. Um, the west side of Salt Lake City, a lot of black and brown communities, a lot of immigrants, um, much lower income for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where a lot of our um, kind of factories, manufacturing plants, they're all on the west side of Salt Lake City. Um, they also um, are building an inland port on that side of the city that um, hasn't really had fully studied environmental impacts. Um, there was kind of this grand claim during the last mayoral election um, about this inland port, and um, there was actually a series of protests last May about it, if I'm getting the timeline right, um, about the inland port. Um, they really haven't studied the environmental impact of this. They've uh, basically said, we're going to make it, like, the most energy efficient and, like, <laughs> agreeable. They basically just threw a bunch of, like, buzzword soup. Yeah. And when you press them for details, they don't really have details about how they're going to, like, mitigate the environmental factors here. Um, and they're putting it in the lowest income zip codes in the city, um, where there's also multiple elementary schools, like, within a few blocks of where this is going to be. Um, 
another interesting thing about Salt Lake City is that um, we really don't know the full extent of how bad the difference is in this, this air quality is because um, the research-grade sensors that we have in the city, guess where they are? In storage somewhere. <laughs> Not being used. So, um, research-grade sensor, sensors are, they can be pretty pricey. Um, they can be upwards of like a couple hundred thousand dollars depending on like the size and the quality that you're using for it, depending on what type of particles that you're wanting to track them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all placed in the east part of the city, um, where the air quality is better, yeah, and where there is more money and affluence, yeah. Um, and so, um, the only types of like air quality sensors that we really have placed across the city um, that are not in affluent, predominantly white neighborhoods in Salt Lake City, um, for the most part, they're not really research grade sensors. I think we've now installed maybe one or two that um, researchers at the U have been able to get grants for. Um, but for the most part, they're like these little Arduino kit type of sensors to sense air quality. And even with those, even with these non-research grade sensors, um, you can tell that there's a there's a difference in air quality between these two areas. The problem, though, is um, that Salt Lake City schools they make decisions about bad air days and like what their policies are going to be for kids playing out the playground, um, or you know, uh, uh, like whether. Or they're going to be working with like parents that have like asthmatic kids or whatnot. Um, they make those policy decisions based off of the air sensors that are pulling data from the east side of town. Yeah. So if you have um, an elementary school on the west side of town that's in the heart of like the worst air quality, your air quality could be like in the red. Um, so it could be a red air day over in that area of town, and it could be a green air day over on the east side of town. Um, and that school, like, the decision that the principal makes, the decision that the district makes, is based off of the air quality data that's being pulled from the east side of the city. That's heartbreaking. Like, I feel sick to my stomach right yes. now. Like, that's that's messed up. That's awful. I mean, it's... I'm having, like... Uh, so I'm, I'm originally from Michigan, and so, like, the stuff happening in Flint um, is... Okay, is uh, I grew up outside of Detroit. Okay. Yeah. Um, like right between Detroit and Ann Arbor, um, and actually the the town that I grew up in, it's it's weird if you think about like how, like the shifting quality of the suburbs relative to how cities are declining. Uh, my town is is now practically more a suburb of Ann Arbor than of Detroit. Um, but really, I mean, it's just all it's just all one big stretch. Like it's it's practically a, a megapolis, really. But yeah, like the Flint stuff has really affected me. Um, and uh, just thinking about like what what sorts of outcomes the kids growing up there are now faced with, right? In terms of all the things that we know that lead poisoning um, does, and, and just long term exposure to lead um, does to the body and the brain is is so just mind bogglingly awful that Michigan state government has let it go on for so long. And so now I'm having like. I'm guessing that there's probably similar uh, things happening in, in SLC, right? Like, this has to, like, this constant exposure to this air pollution and, like, sending kids out to play on a red air day when it's, like, I imagine you can see, like, the smog has to be visible and, like, that. <sighs> well, and it also, yeah, so parents are basically faced with a couple options um, because it might be the school that the parents um, are using, you know, kind of, again, not, non like a non-research grade sensor, but 
using, you know, like a little at-home sensor or something better quality. Um, <clears throat> and so parents are kind of left with two, one or two options. So your option is you can send your kids to school, um, hope that maybe the kid stays in for recess, you can, you know, reach out to the principal or the teacher to express some concerns about this, or you can keep your kid home. Um, and uh, that's been a big trend is a lot of parents have started keeping their kids home on bad air days um, because, you know, they are concerned about, you know, them getting exposed to bad air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a totally also, reasonable reaction. <laughs> yeah, and um, and the other issue, too, is, um, and, and this is a nationwide thing on here, so I used, when I worked and lived in Alabama and Mississippi, if you went into a lot of the schools, um, and we're seeing this pop up again, conversation-wise with COVID, um, a lot of the schools have super outdated HVAC systems. Um, and so even um, if you have a basic functioning HVAC system in your school, um, it's probably not filtering out a lot of the pollutants um, yeah. that are happening during bad air days. Um, when I've interviewed teachers before, they said that there's you know, definite differences in kind of kids' behaviors on those days, um, whether, like, it's explicit because, you know, they're getting a different type of recess that has, like, less ability for them to be moving, um, or, you know, there's also, like, there's health impacts that also impact your, like, mental state of being, right? Like, um, and um, so if kids don't feel well, they're not going to be performing super well in class. Yeah. Um, be, like, really there present. Um, and so it's also kind of created this tension between teachers and principals and parents um, who are choosing to keep their kids from the bad air days um, because, you know, that wraps up absenteeism rates, right? Um, it also means that they're losing instructional time. Um, some principals um, have instructed teachers to be flexible with parents and to work with them when kids are missing class and days. Um, a lot of teachers feel like that expectation is kind of unreasonable. Um, Utah boasts as having the lowest like, well, I don't know if it's still the lowest, but it's definitely one of the lowest, one of the lowest um, uh, per people expenditure rates, which also means, you know, much higher, like, teacher-to-student ratios. It means less resources in the classrooms. It means less money spent on building upgrades for, like, HVAC systems and stuff. Um, and so it's this whole, like, massive systemic problem um, that really links back to a lot of environmental issues here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I mention all of this because we... Um, that piece that I mentioned about green spaces first coming to play here. One of the things that you can do, especially in um, areas that do have kind of poor air quality, um, is green spaces can play a really critical role um, uh, in terms of like kind of balancing out um, bad air days or balancing out um, uh, you know heat effects, for example. So um, the, the problem though is that the green spaces are not getting installed in low-income areas. Yeah. In business districts, um, in places where you know, the, so the neighborhood that I live in, Shaker House, um, is a it's a fairly affluent area of Salt Lake City. We have quite a few green spaces. We have a massive park. It's like the biggest park in the city is in my uh, mm -hmm. district. Um, and um, so we have a lot of access to green space. Like we, you know, I, I walk around and like in front. In fact, even in the area that I live in, like there's trees lining the mm -hmm. walkways. Um, so it does a couple things. Like, first of all, it means that I have reduced utility costs, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it means that my buildings are, like, physically less hot um, because the trees help provide some coverage for this. Mm -hmm. um, so it reduces the heat. It means that I end up paying less for those bills. I don't have to run my AC as often. Or if I do, I'm running, you know, it's, it's, it's just not costing me as much money. Um, 
but also lucky enough to have health insurance, right? So even if I do have heat exhaustion or uh, like health effects that come from, uh, you know, my house being too hot, I couldn't afford to run the AC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have access to health clinic down the street. Um, I have access to health insurance that will help pay for that. Um, and then I also have, um, you know, I have like access to the screen space that's making the air quality in my area better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, these really become like massive systemic issues because um, not only are we feeling like those climate effects worse on the west side of the city, um, but we are not using any of the adaptation strategies to actually mitigate the effects of people who live in the west side of Salt Lake City. Um, so when this came up yesterday, um, one of the first things I asked is, you know, hey, um, a lot of my research in this area has shown that um, oftentimes these green spaces or these public lands get installed in high-income areas, um, areas that are, like, predominantly white. Um, what is the city doing to actually, like, strategically plan for installation of green spaces on the west side of Salt Lake City? Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, our needs assessment is showing, like, data that supports your findings here. Um, and so we got volunteers who will talk to communities about this. And I was like, we're definitely going to end up having some, um, I think, follow-up conversations on this um, because... Uh, having volunteers that are going to go talk to communities is not a sufficient plan for cities <laughs> to address this inactivity. No. And I mean, ultimately, too, this is like when we talk about environmental racism, like this is a perfect example of yeah. this, right? Not only do you have um, like uh, long term policies like zoning um, mm-hmm. that has placed industry in like concentrated areas of the city that are low income and predominantly. Um, you know, inhabited by like BIPOC folks, um, mm-hmm. but you also have continuing policies that could mitigate the impact of those zoning laws, um, and, and where you kind of like culturally created space to happen in your city. Like you have the ability from a policy and from a fiscal standpoint mm-hmm. to actually allocate resources to counteract to the negative policy impact that you created, but we're not doing that. Yeah, um, and. So what's interesting about this and and how it kind of ties into my research on the broader end of this, so um, I know that I've really gone in the weeds about Salt Lake City here. No, Um, please, I told you, please go into the weeds. (laughs) I think this is fascinating. I mean, I do, I I was involved, I'm not any as much as I was before um, for a few reasons, but I, like, in December 2016, um until maybe last year I was like very heavily involved in local politics in northeastern Pennsylvania um and uh still do occasionally um in like an advisory capacity but it uh, obviously northeastern PA is very different from from uh where you are um with its own set of problems and and what ultimately ended up frustrating me was just like the sheer level of uh corruption (laughs) here uh and um, like I, I had, I was in a meeting, uh, a few weeks ago as of this recording, maybe like a month ago, um, about creating a, uh, a citizens police, like overwatch kind of group, um, for Wilkes-Barre. Um, Wilkes-Barre is a dying coal town, <laughs> uh, that like, like so many other coal towns in this part of the country has really struggled to find a new identity. Um, and so they they the city council um woman i was uh who drafted the bill um who i have a, a great deal of respect for if she happens to be listening to this uh drew up this legislation and my reaction was this is a terrible idea it's not going to work 
like these these types of words never work. <laughs> they become rubber stamps for for bad behavior for the police. We've known this for decades. There's no way that you can reform the police from the inside, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we said all of this um, to her and to members of the NAACP who were involved, and everybody was like, well, <laughs> maybe it'll work for us, <laughs> and went ahead and tried to pass it anyway. And so, like, well, why did I spend the last two hours, like, arguing <laughs> against this when you had already decided? Um, but yeah, so, like, I, I totally understand the the connection between, like, here's what the research says we should do, and then here's what people think is the political reality. And I that idea, or that, that thing that you just said about sending out volunteers to go talk about uh, green spaces, it reminds me of financial literacy training that, that organizations like, well, some branches of the NAACP do. I know mine locally is, they're big proponents of this. Because it's, it's like, I mean, with the financial literacy thing, right? It's, okay, so you have been victimized by this this massive corporate capitalist system for decades. And rather than give you the tools to try to dismantle the system, we're going to try to throw a little pittance your way and, and say, here's maybe some tips for how to, how to better survive this system that by design hates you and wants you to fail. And so for this, it's like, okay, well, we have the resources to create green spaces on the west side of, of Salt Lake City. Um, we have all the research. But instead, we're going to go door knocking and be like, maybe you should plant some saplings in your yard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling to me um, how you look at kind of this mountain of evidence and your solution is like, we'll go talk to them. Like, <laughs> here's, here's a few packets of wildflower seeds for you. <laughs> well, and also, you know, it, it brings up the larger question of like, who, who from the west side of Salt Lake City is sitting on you know, the public lands um, the, I think they're calling it Reimagine Nature SLC. Um, so Reimagine Nature sounds like dystopian. It sounds like something from a site like, like Blade Runner Three. <laughs> like that's yeah. scary. Like imagine nature, but if it was robotic and industrialized and just dumping pollutants into into the air and water. And here's your here's some wildflower seeds we have for you that are actually an invasive species. <laughs> Like public land spaces pop up, and it's like to be like public lands by Amazon. Oh, for sure. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um, and then in a hundred years, there's going to be riots about like tearing down the Jeff Bezos statues, <laughs> and and people defending Amazon as a vital part of our history and our heritage. Right. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. So it's it's interesting to hear them um, kind of talking about the strategy. And so, well, I've gotten really in the weeds with Salt Lake City here and kind of seen this happen from a, a public policy, like, here's how this stuff, how, how the meat gets made in this, um, or the sausage gets made. I'm really bad with it. Um, <laughs> it's um, okay. You know, the thing is, so my research, um, I actually kind of am zoomed up a, a little bit on the levels here. So um, I don't even study, I've, I've managed to, like, Got really involved with Salt Lake City politics here, and I have studied some of the U.S. cities um, and their approaches to this partially because I'm trying to actually understand what's happening at an international level. Okay. So 
I actually look at global cities um, and um, how cities participate in forums like the Mayor's Compact or C40 mm-hmm. um, or ICWI um, and what type of effect that has hmm. on the local policies that they implement. So I specifically look at four cities um, and with COVID, who knows what my dissertation will end up being <laughs> um, at this point. Um, <laughs> the, the hope was in these four cities that it, it might end up getting hard down a little bit um, just for kind of function purposes. But four towns in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at um, Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, Seoul in South Korea, uh, Mexico City in Mexico, and then um, I look at Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Um, or Saigon. Uh, I use both terms kind of interchangeably. Um, there's some interesting like politics and discourse around uh, name with that. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'm actually kind of interested because a lot of the research we have right now about how cities take on climate adaptation and mitigation, um, for the most part, they're actually cities out of Europe. Um, that's, that's most of the research that's out there on how mm-hmm. cities are approaching this mm-hmm. right now. Um, and U.S. cities are starting to become more of a piece of this conversation um, and becoming more involved with this. Um, mostly because you have folks like the mayor of Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York um, Trying to kind of reframe themselves um, as being these like global climate leaders, um, and there was actually this big hubbub a couple years ago um, where San Francisco decided that they were going to hold an international climate forum, um, and this was I think a year after President Trump announced that um, we were going to be withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day, you had like 210 U.S. city mayors say we're going to keep moving forward with. Um, climate change goals, um, you know, we're going to keep we're gonna keep pressing forward, right? Um, and uh, that, that particular event is actually what motivated my research, because I was like, hmm, I'm wondering, like, could you actually just bypass national levels of government and still get pretty close to um, the type of climate change, like, emissions reductions that we need to be shooting for mm-hmm. um, if you just have, like, subnational actors do this, right? We really need, like, national-level coordination on this. Um, by and large, so far, what my research has found is, like, there's not really a way to escape any type of national coordination on this, um, specifically when you're looking at such a large percentage of um, emissions coming from the energy sector. It really requires um, national and even sometimes, like, regional levels of coordination between governments because... Um, Right now, we have this, like, hyper-localized energy sector, um, and it means that, like, uh, like technology um, that is maybe compatible with one area of the state is not compatible with another area of the state, depending on what your, like, mm-hmm. your state energy grid looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so without national coordination, like, there really is no feasible way to, to coordinate a renewable spread. Um, there are also... Um, you know, there's also this, this piece of, like, tech, right? Um, like, you actually need people that have the technological expertise to be able to launch, like, mm-hmm. whole cities on renewable grids and to develop out that technology. Um, well, we've come a pretty long ways in the last couple of years with renewable energy technology. We're still pretty new for a lot of this. Um, like, this is still a really emerging uh, field. Um, there was... Actually, a couple years ago, France had announced that they were um, basically seeking scientists to come 
live in France um, to work on developing out the renewable sector because they're doing a transition from nuclear energy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've basically been poaching scientists from like the U.S. and like other places that are taking on renewables very seriously. Um, and you're starting to see a lot of European countries do this. Um, so um, all of this being said, I was kind of curious. It's like, great, right, well, all right, how are cities approaching this in the first place? Is it possible for them to bypass natural laws into government? Um, and, um, you know, also, like, who are we not hearing from right now? Yeah. Right? Um, so it's like, surely, you know, the little that I know about even just U.S. politics, right? Like, what works in New York City is not going to fly in politics. Yep. Right? Um, like, you have to have different solutions, and it's also different climate impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to have to have, especially from the adaptation standpoint, you're going to have to have different solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I picked four cities um, that are, like, I mean, you could kind of colloquially consider them to be part of, like, the global south. Um, again, there's a lot of kind of contested, yeah. um, like, verbiage on this. Um, but um, by and large, I mostly chose those four cases because they both, like, all of them have... Um, kind of, like, histories of either, like, a colonial presence um, yeah. or Western occupation. Um, and I'm kind of curious about, like, what effect has that had um, in terms of, like, some of the long-term um, strategy that, like, cities within those countries have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, they all have kind of varying levels of participation in different international orgs that they're part of and that they're active participants in. Yeah. Um, and they also have different relationships with their national levels of government. Yeah. So... For example, I think in the U.S., um, some of what we see with um, the, like, this immediate response from city mayors, like, we know that in the U.S., like, cities are often run, uh, or, like, often run by Democrats, um, and we um, we know that, like, they're overwhelmingly blue, right? Like, and especially, um, you know, they oftentimes are also in red states, Um we don't have a lot of like bright blue states these days, aside from like California, New York, um, and even then, um, you know, you still do have a lot of conflict with um, kind of conservative flares within those states. Um, so what's kind of interesting is that um, I think you know some of this I think is a genuine concern about the the massive threat that climate change yeah. poses to our existence. Um, I also think that a lot of these actions um, are kind of greenwashing effects. Um, so, um, and what I mean by that is, um, so several years ago, we started talking about, um, like governments taking on like pinkwashing, um, which is, um, they would like throw on kind of like surface level LGBTQ friendly policies, um, that kind of like covered up more not yeah. awesome stuff that they were doing. Right. Um, and we, we talk about this a lot of times at national levels, like governments will like mm-hmm. have what seems to be like. LGBTQ friendly, like national orientations or or policies to this, but then you know they'll throw trans folks in jail. Um, yeah. Yep. And um, so I, I think we're seeing a similar effect to this with greenwashing, um, where um, and and a lot of the emer- early emerging literature on this talks about corporations doing this. So like they'll they'll do things that seem environmentally friendly, but then you know they'll go cut down all the trees in the Amazon forest. Like <laughs> um, so. Um, uh, but I think that a lot of cities have actually started taking on this greenwashing approach. Um, so they're using it as a way to, you know, so for example, um, last summer, oh, was that last summer? This has felt like a thousand years. Um, <laughs> uh, you had this wave of cities taking on plastic straw bands. 
that was um, last summer, yeah. Yep, and um, those plastic straw bands, though, like, they did nothing. They're yeah. 0.3% of all ocean plastic. Yep. Uh, but by and large, I think something upwards of, like, 55%, I think was the last that I looked on this, um, is commercial fishing. It's the plastic from the nets used in commercial fishing. Mm-hmm. You didn't hear a peep of yeah. commercial fishing that whole summer. You heard about cities, um, and, and a lot of these cities, too, like, uh, so for Boston, for example, like, Boston has a fishing industry. Like, they have a lot of, like, companies that depend on fish, on, on commercial fishing happening mm-hmm. on the shores, right? Um, a lot of New England, in fact, like, has a lot of commercial fish and fishing interests, um, and they were some of the first cities to jump on board plastic straw. Um, and um, in a lot of ways, like, it, it kind of, you know, it, so there's this argument that well, yeah, the plastic trauma is not really effective, blah, 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 but it's a step in the right direction. It's like, actually, it, it's, it, it acts kind of nefariously, though, because people get the impression that the city is doing something serious about plastics, um, and so it, it actually puts people off guard. It's kind of like signing a petition. <laughs> follow up. Yeah. Like, yep. Yeah. Um, and so it... The, the problem, though, is that when um, cities are taking on these greenwashing types of effects, people feel good. They feel warm and fuzzy, and they feel like, I did the thing, yep. or look how good we are, right? Yep. But they're failing to actually address like, actual things that are a threat to our environment and a threat to uh, especially the most vulnerable folks yep. who are living in cities. Um, and, uh, you know, part of the problem is, is like, um, we have cities that are basically competing um, for this type of like public-private partnership money um, because we're decreasing state and federal levels of support for cities, and so cities are having to make up that revenue in other places because there's also this lack of popularity with like taxing your citizens. Um, and so the only option you really have is to kind of create these like corporate partnerships um, or to hope that you bring in enough businesses that you can tax the businesses um, and like make up your lost revenue that way. Um, and so um, cities have kind of started branding themselves as, like, being these, like, eco-friendly cities. So, like, San Diego, for example, um, there was probably, cool, probably, like, two or three dozen articles when they, like, beat San Francisco a year or two ago in terms of environmental sustainability rankings. They milked that. Like, that that was all they talked about was, like, their sustainability policies for, like, a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't really doing anything kind of that groundbreaking. <laughs> Um, they were, they were kind of just, they were doing like the run of the mill kind of like owning stuff. Honestly, the stuff that makes the biggest impact in terms of city policy, um, and reducing emissions, um, improving conditions for folks in cities that are affecting, affected by climate change, um, is like the least sexy stuff that you could possibly imagine. It's like the, like most boring mundane zoning policies, um, <laughs> And, like, no one no one wants to care about that stuff. Like, no yeah. one wants to pay attention to that. Um, and, um, and the other thing on this, too, is that we, uh, right now, um, for the most part, if, if you, like, pull up U.S. data, for example, on building efficiency, um, there's no independent agency that collects that data. Um, we depend on cities and companies and building owners to self-report that information. Um, and so... Um, like we're literally just in the phase of data collection with this internationally where we're kind of just begging people to just report data in the first place regardless of whether it's accurate or not. 
Um, and so cities are also kind of making themselves sound more environmentally friendly than they have been, or they'll like kind of manipulate the statistics and be like, well, we had a 200% increase in efficiency. It's like, yeah, but you didn't report your data the year before. So like, of course. <laughs> you have a 100% increase in this when you didn't report data for 2018. Yeah. Right? Oh, and, and no one's checking these things because everyone's just like, progress is good. Like, what yeah. Progress? Um, without realizing that, like, we have a really small window of time yeah. to make mitigation efforts, but also adaptation efforts on this. Um, and um, the problem is, this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon. We also see this happening globally in all four of the cities. Um, and granted, I'm just in the pilot stages of this research, research right now, and I had the kind of hit pause um, on the right now. Um, You know, even in my uh, pilot stages of collecting data on this, um, there's a couple trends that are directly parallel to what's happening in the U.S. Um, So you see in all the cities I study, you see the green spaces in the business Mm -hmm. districts and the high-income areas of those cities. Um, Even though all four of those cities are or deal with like heat effects um, yeah. and in a lot of ways um, the folks that are most vulnerable in those cities um, often have like much higher levels of vulnerability than our, our vulnerable folks in like Salt Lake City or New York City or um, <clears throat> because oftentimes like those buildings won't even have any type of cooling system installed if you yeah. don't have coverage from green spaces in the, in the areas of that city you have no coverage like, you have no ability to reduce Plus, there has to be coastal effects too, right? I mean, Salt Lake, but the, the water in the Salt Lake isn't rising. <laughs> like, I, I I suspect Seoul and uh, is is Buenos Aires is a coastal city. I think I'm not uh, sure, but they, have a, they do have a river. Um, and and one of the more interesting stories I heard when I was doing my pilot visit out there was um, the city actually relocated. Um, they basically kind of have like. Um, they have like a, a houseless community um, that has like a, a kind of like a tent camp set up, mm-hmm. um, and they the city actually basically had to convince them to like move their yeah. site inland because the river was like washing out of it. Yeah. Um, and um, and then the one that actually has the worst impacts um, in terms of like coastal effects is actually um, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, okay. They. Um, and it's interesting, too, because they did this uh, study with the Delta Cities Initiative, which is um, run out of Rotterdam. Mm-hmm. Um, they partner with cities globally to kind of do, like, needs um, impact assessments and then, like, make policy recommendations. One of the recommendations they made is actually installing more green spaces mm-hmm. around the riverbanks because not only will it have, you know, some mitigation for heat island effects and, like, improve air quality, but... Um, it will also, like, depending on the type of vegetation that you put in for the green spaces there, um, it can also, like, help, um, like, block flooding. Yeah, yeah. And the worst effects of that um, are definitely with, like, the more vulnerable populations in which you would see. Um, yeah. You know. There's there's one that I, I, it's not on your list that I, I am compelled to mention um, just for people listening. Uh, a couple of years ago, and I've talked about this on here before, um, my university was partnering with um, a few universities in Panama, um, so I had the opportunity to travel to Panama City twice, and um, their projections about the effect of climate change on their country is that there will be no more country, that um, 
they they expect in the next few years some of the islands surrounding Panama on and either side of the of the country will will be um, will disappear. Um, there are still indigenous um, peoples living on those islands that are are now being forced to relocate um, or or perish, I guess. Um, but like long term projections of the future of, of Panama is that there will just be no more Panama and there will be no more like land connection between North and Central and South America anymore. Um, which is unbelievable. But then at the same time, they are they when I was there they had just finished an expansion of the Panama Canal and were not going to stop and we're going to immediately start another expansion of the canal. Um so no matter which way you cut it, I guess, like Panama is losing land. Like they're losing land if they keep up with stuff, but then if they keep up with stuff, they're they're tacitly accelerating climate change and then there's no more Panama. And it's terrifying. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful country. Um it's just so sad. But yeah, I wanted to I wanted to put that out there. Um oh. I'm glad that you had mentioned that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the effects, especially for um, country, I mean, the most urgent effects um, are really countries or cities um, that have you know proximity to water. Yeah. Um, but for example, like the island nation, Pinterest, like it's probably not going to exist in the future. It's probably going to be underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so when we think about the kind of, like, holistic impacts of this. It's not just, um, oh, it gets a little hotter, or, like, you might have to move your house, but, like, whole oh, nations, like, whole yeah. peoples are, like, being displaced from their lands and their homes. It's really um, horrifying in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, and I think that, like, makes this particular kind of, like, lens and angle on this rewashing piece like, even more kind of icky in a lot of ways, because cities are... Um, you know, and again, um, it's not that I don't think that there are people... I, I think a lot of city officials think that they're doing the right thing. Um, but I think, like, under the surface of this, a lot of the things that are moving these projects forward are... Um, like, they're very aware of the impact that this has for, like, international reputation. Um, and uh, they're very aware of the fact that uh, a lot of it is to really kind of court international investment. So, for example, if you look at the, na- the nationally determined contributions, those are the documents that countries have to write for the Paris Agreement. Um, and we're now getting the second round of submissions for those. Um, if you look at um, Vietnam's, a lot of theirs is talking about the very real adaptation needs that they have. Um, and they're also mentioning specifically the um, Know, the need for foreign direct investment. Like about half of their nationally determined contribution document is talking about like the fact that they do not have the financial resources to do this themselves. And when you look at Ho Chi Minh City's plan, um, they're talking very specifically about the need for foreign direct investment. And when you talk to folks on the ground about what com- like where they're specifically kind of recruiting um, companies from, like they're recruiting from China, Russia, um, and like the U.S. in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what's happening is a lot of, and, like, this is also having kind of, like, deep effects, too, for, like, locals in Ho Chi Minh City because, like, they're trying to run local businesses for construction or renewables or whatnot, um, and they're not receiving government contracts for this. Um, they're receiving, like, the folks, um, the folks that are coming from, like, other countries and, like, those companies 
even if the wage, like the cost is not like as good, like they're winning these contract bids for the most part because there's this like narrative that the national government and also the city government has built that like we can't get through this if we don't have um, like investment outside of Vietnam. And um, to some extent, like the, the this is the other issue too with a lot of international financing. So money that's being made available for cities to do things like green. Uh, green, I'm going to call it greenwashing initiatives. <laughs> green space. Initiative. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a lot of that that money that's being made available uh, has two problems. Like first, they're usually for very specific types of projects. So it's like electric vehicles or green spaces. Like, uh, I mean, Poaching in City is like still a lot of like motorbikes and stuff. It's not great for the air quality, but like electric vehicles is very low on the list of priorities of things that like Poaching in City. Yeah. Right. Um. And green spaces are helpful from an adaptation strategy, but the way they want cities to develop plans, so if you look at like the request for proposals, um, they're really nudging cities towards almost having to make a case for putting these in business districts or in high-income areas of their city. Um, like there, there's not really, they're not asking cities to consider where the most vulnerable and like needed places for these to go are. They're, they're really they're being put there for kind of a PR move. Um, and so a lot of these international agencies, they want like flashy types of projects that they can take photos of and show, look at this project that we funded in Yada Yada City. Um, and so the places that they're putting it, like the type of vegetation that you need to put in place to reduce flooding or to, um, you know, mitigate like heat effects, like it's not stuff that's like gonna photograph particularly well. Like it's not really flashy. It's not sexy to look at. Um, and so it, it doesn't make a good photograph. Like, mm-hmm. there's an aesthetic piece on this that's not really helpful. Um, and um, the other piece on this is that there's usually not actual, like, follow-up or accountability for the funding. So um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a paper um, on greenwashing um, that was talking about a project that Seoul started out doing. Um, so they started out this like big green space project. They broke ground on it, and they never finished it. Like mm-hmm. they received an international grant for this, and they just they started the project and they just didn't finish. And like no one ever followed up on it because there's no follow up right now about like international funding that's being given to cities. There's a lot of buzz about cities doing this stuff, but no one follows up, you know, in five years to like make sure that the project got put in place. And so cities will, like, take the funding, they'll start their project, they'll either realize that they don't have matching funding to continue the project, or the, the project's more expensive than they thought, or they just lose interest in it. Um, because, again, it's not really a critical project, it's, like, to get some PR for the city. Yeah. Um, and then they abandon it. Um, and it's a problem because then people think, like, well, wait, but didn't they, they installed that green space over there, right? Um, and then when you go visit the green space, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so um, that's also a big problem too with the international financing end of this is we're encouraging cities to start these things but we're not actually following up to see if it had an impact so like we're not measuring the effectiveness of any of these responses that cities have so um, what I'm finding really with my research is that uh, cities that are participating in kind of more western driven networks so like C40 is a very western driven they're tending to like kind of parrot the stuff that cities are, like, there's, like, a parody effect with this, um, or diffusion, um, if you like, technical, which lots of people have different, like, theories of diffusion, so I'm not going to wade quite into that water, <laughs> but, um, there is kind of a diffusion effect, um, basically is what I'm finding of, like, if 
you know, these five cities do it. Um, it becomes kind of a popular thing to do. They develop a lot of resources and infrastructure for cities to be able to replicate those policies, and so those policies then get put in place. Especially if you're a city like Buenos Aires, which is trying to position itself as a Western city. Mm-hmm. They really, and their their country's actually the front contribution is also really interesting because they basically make a whole argument for why they're taking a more aggressive emissions reduction standard um, and basically trying to say, like, well, we've taken care of all the other issues in our country, so we're going to focus on the environment because, like, we are a well-developed country and a well-developed city and we can focus on this. Um, it's almost being used by some cities as a way to show, like, we're serious because we can focus on environmental issues. Um, and so what's interesting about that is, um, so you have, like, some parroting effect that's created by cities wanting to, like, mimic other cities um, and, like, Western-dominant cities. Um, and then you all have cities that are taking this on because it's the only funding that's being made available for these projects, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for any type of mitigation or adaptation projects, even if they're not the things that are actually going to make a difference in cities. Um, so for cities, like, Western cities that are in those networks, they're driving a lot of the conversation that's happening um, internationally with cities. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm finding is that cities that participate in more regional-based networks tend to actually have like more aligned, sustainable solutions. So mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh City is kind of an interesting case in this because um, they participate in like C40 and like international orgs because they need this foreign direct investment piece. But they also have like these really locally-centered, sustainable solutions um, and they also look at their approach to climate change as a holistic approach. So if you look at both Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh City's climate action plans, they're not just, here's the environmental thing that we're doing, but like, okay, here's what we're doing around education and healthcare and like housing. Um, and it's interesting because um, they do that because they recognize that the people being disproportionately impacted by climate change are their most vulnerable in the city and in the country. Um, so it's interesting to watch kind of the opposite happen with Western leadership. Like in the United States, when the Green New Deal got announced, um, as a policy proposal, you heard politicians saying, like, well, they're, this is just going to benefit rich people. Like, only rich people can, like, afford to care about this. Um, and it's interesting because Vietnam is taking a whole different 180 approach to this and saying, actually, like, we need stuff like the Green New Deal. <laughs> like, like Vietnam has, has had this type of policy in place for a really long time. So it's interesting when I, when I see kind of Western leaders try to make it sound like they've come up with this idea because the reality is, like, countries that have had a history of being exploited by Western countries have recognized <laughs> the interconnectedness of these issues for a long, long time and been making... Um, you know, efforts and strides towards integrating these issues for a while, but Western countries haven't seen that as a priority, so they only want to fund one part of this. Yeah. Um, the whole be providing support and infrastructure um, to countries that have already recognized, like, how much of this exploitation has had. So. That's so massively frustrating. And, yeah. and thinking about, too, um, on the subject of greenwashing, the greenwashing stuff that corporations do, right? So, like, before before this interview, I was upstairs watching TV with my kids, and there was a, a commercial for Amazon, and like the actor playing the Amazon truck driver talking about how he's proud to work for a company that's actively working to reduce their carbon footprint by twenty thirty or whatever, and he's proud to tell his son that he works for Amazon. And like, 
this is gross. <laughs> like, like they're number one. They you're not going to reduce anything by 2030. In 2030, there's gonna like that same guy is gonna be like on a ventilator saying like I'm by 2040, Amazon's gonna reduce their emissions. Like, there's nothing. It, it's total just bull. I mean, it, it's just uh, lip service is the word I'm looking for. Like you know, we have the phenomenon of security here, like environmental, um, and um, so a lot of. I mean, honestly, like it, it, it kind of sucks because in a lot of ways. So like when you know when people like reimagine nature, SLC comes to present to me, the trustee and my my local board, all I can think about is like the international impact that this type of policy has mm-hmm. on actually seriously addressing climate change, um, and. Mm-hmm. Like, great, I'm glad you all are looking at this, but, like, sending volunteers out to the community isn't going to get this. Like, and the, there's there's real impact to, like, what we're doing at a local level in the U.S. and the type of spillover effects that this has internationally. Because mm-hmm. the conversations that we have locally, that's what takes up a lot of our time and energy. That's where we develop the expertise on this. And so there's people who are sitting on my community council who might have, like, roles in their companies um, or might have um, influence at like, a larger scale who are walking away thinking like this is great this is the solution to climate change right and it's not yeah. um, and so I think like I think folks don't realize that this international level and this local level are much more interconnected mm-hmm. um, than we often think about them like we often think about them in more just type of but the case is like these things are interconnected especially in the globalized society um and so, like, what we do locally really does have, like, ripple effects out to the international level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, yeah, you can sit there and roll your eyes and be like, well, this city councilor is not effective and this policy does nothing. Like, say something about it. Mm-hmm. Like, show up to your local city council. <laughs> yeah. Join your local city council and actually push people to really consider these policies because, like, we export this stuff. Yep. Like, we're not just exporting goods and resources with globalization. We're also exporting values and Yep. This is, this is part of and we can apply that to, to everything up to and including climate change, right? Uh, uh, educational policy, healthcare, criminal justice policy, um, everything. Um, so the last thing I want to ask you about, just to come back to it, because you, you asked me to remind you um, before I let you go, is the, the water quality issue in Salt Lake City. What's going on with the lake? Yeah, so um, this is also another, so it's, it's less the lake. Um, we actually get most of our clean water sources from the snowpack. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, for a fun fact for folks that don't know and you're looking for your next vacation, um, so Salt Lake City um, is surrounded by like 21 different ski resorts, um, and we have mountain ranges that are pretty close. Um, so we've like all within an hour of Salt Lake City. So a lot of um, our clean water that we depend on um, comes from snowpack, and so when we get low, like low amounts of snow or low amounts of precipitation, um, we don't have clean water reserves. Um, and for other parts of Utah, we share some of that water source with California and Colorado, which has lots of fun water compact issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we actually, a couple of years ago, we had kind of, the mayor was a little bit panicked about this um, and actually kind of put us on like a water alert because our snowpack a couple years ago was pretty low. I think it was like maybe a historic 10 year low or something like that. So they were worried. They ended up getting a lot of snow last winter, um, which didn't end up affecting that. But, uh, or so like we kind of balanced out with our, our water levels here. But um, 
Yeah, it's really concerning. You saw kind of a, we're actually seeing kind of a big push citywide now um, for folks to get rid of their lawns, like mm-hmm. their lawns and replacing it with like um, either gardens or um, something that doesn't require watering. Yeah. We saw like a big push for that in California um, back when the, the drought was kind of a little tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to see that now in Salt Lake City. What's interesting though, this is again where that boring zoning code stuff comes into play. Is um, you have a lot of HOAs um, and then also um, neighborhood zoning laws that require if you don't have grass, you have to have like um, I, I need to go and look at specifically at it because it changes a little bit from neighborhood to neighborhood. But you have to have like um, like certain types of vegetation or something in there. Like you ha- you can't just have mulch. Like yeah. you have to have growing in your yard, um, which also creates some like issues with figuring out like what can you put in there that doesn't require a lot of water but yeah use HOA or this um and it's and you also will get fined like if you let your yard die like so if you have a grass yard and just let it die like you also get fined for that um so it's um I mean really that stuff like it has again trickle impacts because if your whole neighborhood or your whole HOA like has grass lawns massive grass lawns because we have a lot of space here um, and granted, like, the density in, in Salt Lake City is becoming lower, but, um, uh, or, sorry, it's becoming higher because we have less land space and less, um, uh, um, it, it becomes a problem because then everyone's having to water their lawns because everyone's going to, like, narc on them to the HOA and you're going to get fined hundreds of dollars if you don't water your lawn and keep it alive. Um, so, um, again, um, you know, you really have to pay attention to what's happening in your neighborhood around you because this has, like, massive impacts that trickle up to, like, local and state levels. Um, if you might be annoyed at the HOA for their policy, like, say something about it, right? Yeah, work to, ab- work to abolish your stupid HOA. Don't narc on your neighbors for trying to do, like, a very, very, very minor thing to try to save the water supply and and whatever. And grass, grass is not that great for the environment anyway i mean it's, I, it's found out, I found out that i'm allergic to basically every type of grass in Utah this year so <laughs> I've, it's now become like my personal hell to die on that everyone <laughs> oh i hate i every time i have to cut my grass i i get so angry i mean it's a waste of gasoline it's a waste of my time uh and yeah it's it's dumb don't cut your grass abolish your hoa <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> On that note, we will we'll wrap it up for today. I've taken up so much of your time, Devin. Thank you so much. Your work is incredible. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on here, and um, I hope uh, I hope I've inspired folks to write a letter to your HOA and abolish them. <laughs> so. I'm sure you did. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. 
all of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.